what's weighing you down. Responsibilities, what you thought you should be that you think you aren't. Well, just right now, maybe you can picture this. You just take it off your back. He's standing in front of you. And you lay it at his feet. And now, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us to look in your eyes and hear what it is that you have to say to each one of us. And then I pray that you would help us um, to respond authentically, freely, truly, as you desire. We pray that you'd help us to preach, Lord Jesus. Amen. Hey, it's great to see you um, and uh, to know that you're out there if you're watching online. I mean, most people participate in the service online, and some I see it through the fat and other places, so it's great to see you. Um, but uh, last week, hopefully, you watched the message, and you know that we talked about a most encouraging, discouraging story from the book of Acts, chapter 5, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Today, I want to talk about another most encouraging, discouraging story from Acts chapter 13, the story of Elymas, the magician. I found that um, conservative Christians sometimes discover the relentless love of God, and then they uh, think that it's inconsistent with the scary passages in the Bible that they learn from the past. And they just start jettisoning scripture like old mainline liberals. And I just find it tragic for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's the Bible that testifies to the truth of God's relentless love and the victory of our Lord Jesus at the cross. And number two, the world is scary and discouraging, but in scripture, the most discouraging stories are the most encouraging in the end. So when we stop reading the Bible to the end, I think we also stop living our lives to the end. And Jesus is the end. People will say, God is love and love wins. So, well, God would never cause me pain. And uh, God will give me whatever I want. And then when they don't get what they want and they experience some pain, they lose faith. Unaware that Jesus said, you must pick up a cross, one of those, and follow me. I'm the end. The life is the end. So anyway, last week I told you why I thought the discouraging story of Ananias and Sapphira was actually so very encouraging. Number one, Number two, God saves everybody. Number three, God disciplines everybody. But we didn't have much time to talk about number three. So this week, another encouraging, discouraging story, okay? Acts chapter 13, verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, and we don't know exactly how he said this, but said it somehow, set apart from me Saul, for the work to which I have called him, that 
fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them on, sent them off. From last week, you remember that Barnabas was called the son of encouragement. Saul shows up in Acts chapter 8, where he is a co-conspirator in the death of Stephen, the first martyr. However, Saul is converted in chapter 9 by the manifest glory of God, the light of God revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord on the road to Damascus. And then Paul uh, is befriended by Barnabas and introduced to the disciples in, the Jerusalem, in Jerusalem who at first are terrified of, of Saul. In Acts 11, Barnabas brings Saul to Antioch in Syria where the disciples are first called Christians. In Acts 13, Barnabas and Saul, who is also called Paul, are commissioned. Okay, so this is the start of Saul's ministry, verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salami, no baloney, Salami, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bargesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Magician is probably a fairly poor translation of the Greek word magos, even though we get our word magician, magician from the Greek word magos. In that day, a magician was not a high school kid that you hired to do tricks at your kid's birthday party or an illusionist somewhere on the Vegas Strip. A magician was a wizard or a sorcerer or wise man. In fact, the three wise men from the east that came and visited Jesus were magi, the plural of Magos. They were pagan magicians, but this Elymas, or Elymas, is Jewish. Jewish and even Christian, a Christian magician. So he would have used the sacred name of Yahweh in incantations and spells. He would have used it in vain, which is why the Jewish authorities forbade the use of the name Yahweh except by certain people on certain days. Uh, and they were those people. So it was also kind of, to me, rather in vain, for their own vain reasons. Well, anyway, Elymas would have used his knowledge of Yahweh to attempt to prophesy and obtain secret information for political figures like Sergius Paulus, the proconsul, and he would have had the name Jesus printed on all of his promotional material. Bar-Jesus means son of Jesus, Politicians love magicians, and magicians love politicians because they're both enamored with power. So you're bound to see many of them hanging out together in this next election cycle. You just watch, they'll show up. The famous anthropologist Bronislaw Malinowski drew this distinction between magic and religion. In magic, people try to get gods to perform their will. While in religion, true religion, people try to conform their will to the will of the gods or God. In other words, they worship. And then they obey because they they want to do God's will. If we're honest and we pay attention, most of what we call religion may be more accurately defined, I think, as, as magic rather than worship. Ways to get God to do our will. 
And it shouldn't surprise us that immediately after the Holy Spirit is poured out on the early church in the book of Acts, we begin to encounter magicians. Men seeking uh, to control the Holy Spirit. And to be honest, I'm a pastor. That seems pretty attractive to me. That would come in handy for me. In Acts 3 in Samaria, Peter encounters a magician named Simon who actually believes in Jesus and is baptized, but then offers to pay Peter for the ability to impart the Holy Spirit by the laying on of hands. It's more than ironic that, his, that Peter's name, that, that this guy's name was Simon when Peter's name had been Simon. And you remember, it, it was because Peter had wanted power that he rebuked Jesus for talking about his cross, and then Jesus turned and said to him, get behind me, Satan. That's kind of intense. I think it's because of lust for magical powers, our lust for magical powers, that Jesus said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign. And no sign will be given it except the sign of, the, the sign of Jonah. That, that is, the, the man that you kill will rise in three days. So Peter rebukes Simon, and Simon begs for forgiveness. And now Paul meets Elymas in chapter 13, the magician, who opposed them because, well, he was trying to sell the Holy Spirit to Sergius Paulus. And they were calling Sergius Paulus to surrender to the Holy Spirit, verse 9. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, along with Barnabas, the son of encouragement, right? Paul looked intently at Elymas and, and said, and now let me remind you that Paul is the guy who wrote, um, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, right? And he's the guy that wrote, the love of Christ controls us because we're convinced of this, that one has died for all. He's the guy that wrote, love is patient and kind, not jealous or boastful, not irritable or resentful, keeps no record of wrongs, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never ends, love never fails. That Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, verse 9, looked intently at Elymas and said, O son of the devil, enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and fraud, Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Astonished. Not at the power but the teaching, I suspect that's because it was like the exact opposite of magic. And the ways of the principalities and the powers of this uh, present darkness, this present age. Verse 13, now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And that's the end of the story. <laughs> God bless you and may be warmed up. No. That's the end of the story, at least in the book of Acts, right? And so the last we hear of Elymas the magician is that St. Paul looked intently at him and said, O son of the devil, you are enemy of all unrighteousness, full of all deceit and fraud. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. I think we're supposed to ask this question. 
How could St. Paul say such things? And do such things? And as soon as we ask the question, Luke has an answer. Paul, full of the Holy Spirit, looked at him and said these things. He was full of the Spirit of Jesus. Which then raises another question, right? Would Jesus ever say such things? Would Jesus ever do such things? John chapter 8, verse 44. Jesus did say to some religious Jews who, quote, had believed in him, he said this, you are from your father the devil. You are of your father the devil, and you choose to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks according to his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. As we've preached many times, the devil's not the father of, of people, but lies about people. That is, false people. Frauds. It all began uh, at this tree in the middle of the garden. God had said to himself, let us make man, let us make the Adam in our own image and likeness. In other words, it will be something that we do, God said to himself. But the devil said something like this to the Adam. Why don't you take some of the fruit from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil and make yourself in the image and likeness of God? It'll be something that you do. It'll work like magic. Then, as we preached a few months ago, God said something like this to the Adam, man on Mount Sinai. You want the knowledge of good and evil? Well, here it is. Written in stone, Put it in a coffin. You can call it an ark. If you can fulfill this covenant of law, you live. And if you can't, you die. But as we know, they were already dead. Dead in their trespasses and sins and the uncircumcision of their flesh, according to Paul. In Jesus' day, it was the Pharisees that prided themselves on fulfilling the law and so receiving the blessings of God. That is, you know, getting what they desired from God. See, I'm trying to point out that the Pharisees were magicians. And likewise, I think most of what gets sold as Christianity, at least in our day, really isn't so much the worship of God as it is the practice of magic. So Paul had been a Pharisee of Pharisee. He had been a magician of magicians, in the words of Jesus, he had been of his father, the devil, the adversary. So would Jesus ever say such things? Well, yeah, according to the Bible. And would Jesus ever do such things? Yeah, according to the Bible. The story is told three times in detail in the book of Acts, chapters 9, 22, and 26. Paul is on his way to Damascus with letters from the high priest authorizing him to imprison and persecute the followers of Jesus even unto death. About noon, a light from heaven overwhelms Paul, knocks him to the ground, and Jesus says to Paul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you an adversary of me? Acts 9.8, Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. He was blind. So they led him by the hand like Elymas, and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight. In John 9, Jesus says to the Pharisees, for judgment I came into this world, 
that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now you say, we see, your guilt remains. And so Jesus blinds Paul. (laughs) And get this, Jesus then leads Paul, and you can check this all out in Acts 9. Jesus then leads Paul to a man named Ananias in the house of Judas. That was the other discouraging story we studied right before Ananias. He leads him to a man named Ananias in the house of Judas on a street called Straight. Liberal scholars would say that, you know, Luke, he he cooked up these details in order to make a point. I think most conservative scholars would say, well, it was really just coincidence. Uh, I want to say nothing is coincidence. And maybe God is telling us that the story of Ananias is not over. And that the story of Judas is not over, but Paul will fill the office of Judas as his choice for the twelfth disciple. Whatever the case, the story of Judas and the story of Ananias, well, they do not end in death, but in Jesus, who is the life. The life and the end. And, and you see, I just, I just think that's incredibly encouraging. So as we were saying, Jesus blinds Paul, and the Spirit of Jesus leads Paul. Uh, the spirit of Jesus in Paul blinds Elemas, and we've just got to wonder why. Why? Was it uh, punishment? I mean, God working out his anger, some sort of retribution for these guys? You know, when a civil magistrate punishes a criminal, we think of him doing it so that he can, well, like balance the scales of, of justice, right? The, the pagan idol, Lady Justice. But when a a loving father punishes a son, he does it for an entirely different reason. He does it for love, and he does it in order to fashion his son in his own image. So more than simply punishment, we call it discipline. In our politically correct culture, reacting to some pretty horrific abuses of the past, discipline has gotten something of a rather bad reputation. And yet most of us know that if you don't discipline your children, you will really harm your children. And they'll grow up to look something like like this. Thanks. Be strong. I'm just living the dream. Oh, man, I feel like, wow, it's like I come over, it's like I don't know what to expect. I got to be honest, I come in, it's like a little like I'm trying to get my bearings, there's cartoons, your mom, and it's like you still got it. Look at her, just living the dream, I love that. You know what, I will have some meatloaf, let's have some meatloaf. You want some? I knew you'd come. Hey, mom, the meatloaf, we want it now, the meatloaf. What is she doing? I never know what she's doing back there. Just living the dream. Where'd you get that girl? She's hot. I got her yesterday. Yesterday? Yeah. I rode my bike over to a cemetery nearby. Her boyfriend just died. You met her at a funeral? Yeah. Dude died in a hang gliding accident. What an idiot. (laughs) At a funeral? Grief 
is nature's most powerful aphrodisiac. <laughs> Look it up. I didn't know that. That's what I've learned. Ma, the meatloaf! That's Chaz Reinhold, played by uh, Will Ferrell. Owen Wilson uh, plays John Beckwith, who's gone to get relationship advice from the legendary Chaz, who's developed the art of picking up chicks at weddings. Legend is that his ability to pick up chicks, his method, uh, works like magic. But as John uh, interacts with Chaz, he realizes that maybe the magic is kind of bad magic. Chaz gets what he wants, but Chaz can't actually want what he gets, for he doesn't even know what a woman is. Chaz is living the dream, but it's a terrible dream that's turned into a nightmare, for he's obviously never been disciplined. And so, using women, he can no longer see women, and he's utterly blind to love. And now he's imprisoned in his mother's basement, demanding meatloaf and forever an infant. At least until somebody shatters his illusion. Now, listen closely. I'm definitely not recommending that movie for family viewing. I'm just pointing out that we all need discipline. For we all use love and so become blind to love and so need discipline. We all use love to make ourselves lovable, right? And we make ourselves wretched. Chaz needs to be disciplined, and I don't think it can be self-discipline. If Chaz only got smarter, he wouldn't be any better. He'd just be better at pretending to not be what he already is, self-centered and miserable. I don't think it can be self-discipline when it's the self that needs to be disciplined. If you discipline yourself with yourself, it's just more self in more need of, of discipline. The fruit of the Spirit that we call self-control is not the self in control, but the self under the control of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of love. In Scripture, the Pharisees are the champions of self-discipline. They discipline themselves in order to save themselves, and so were most deeply imprisoned in the illusion that they thought was themselves, this false Christ, this false Savior that was themselves, so, so deeply deluded that trying to make themselves lovable, they crucified love. Trying to live, they crucified the author of life, life himself. Chaz attempted to work his magic on women, and Paul attempted to work his magic on God. And I'm just suggesting that we're a lot like Chaz. <laughs> or even worse, Paul. I'm the foremost of sinners, wrote Paul in 1 Corinthians, or 1 Timothy. In Romans 7, he wrote this, Wretched man that I am, that means miserable man that I am, deluded man that I am, enslaved man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death, this psychic body of sin and death in which I am imprisoned. We must fail miserably, wrote George MacDonald, or succeed even more miserably. In other words, we all need to be disciplined. And not just self-disciplined, but disciplined by love. As I said last time, we need goodwill to violate our bad will in order that we might one day have a free will. A, a good free will. As you know, it's love himself that hangs on the tree in the middle of the garden. It's goodwill. 
And it's goodwill that we each have buried in our own bad will, like seed in dark and dirty soil. Goodwill that longs to be our free will. You see, a good free will in you is loving you. And not a funeral. A wedding. Monday night I was lying in bed praying for one of my kids. And I remember praying, God, I just wish that she could see herself the way I see her. I like her so much. And then for some reason, I prayed something like this. Lord, I don't think you like me. That you see yourself in me. I I, I think I, I don't believe that you like me. And then suddenly it just hit me how much that statement must have hurt him. Because you see, that's the statement I most fear hearing from one of my own children. When I say that, I think it means that I'm trying to prove myself to him. For I don't yet believe that he has proven himself to me. And how could God prove himself to me such that I would know that his love wasn't the result of me and what I've done? Right? That's the problem with affirming your kids. How how do they know that you don't love them because they got an A or they did whatever? How could he prove himself to me such that I would know that his love wasn't the result of me and what I've done, but instead the very source of me and everything I do? You know, God is love. And God is our creator. And Jesus said, call him dad. That's what he said to everyone on the side of the hill that day. He made us, and all he makes is good. And yet we don't know that we're good, for we've believed a lie, and we seem to have made ourselves bad. God said, let us make man in our own image and likeness. And the snake said to man, take fruit from the tree and make yourself in the image and likeness of God. When I eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to make myself in the image of God, I think that I am what I have done. Whether the things I've done make me proud or ashamed. And usually it's a terrifying combination of both, right? Combination of Chaz and St. Paul, sinner and self-righteous. When I eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to make myself in the image of God, I think I am what I have done. But when I'm brought back to the tree and I see that what I have taken has always been given, when I eat from the tree of life, I begin to see that I am not what I have done. I am what God has done and what God is doing in space and time. You see, that's exactly what I want my children uh, most to see, what I long for them to see, what I see in them, because I've encountered the miracle that is them. They're not what they do. What they think of as their successes and failures, their addictions, degrees, broken dreams, whatever. They're they're not what they do. They are what I have seen. And that is that they are what God has done. That little girl looking up at me with those big eyes. The little boy hiding in the corner, eating dirt and toothpaste and trying to impress me all at the same time. they're, They're the spirit of love. Returning, longing for love, longing for me. They are 
love that came through me now returning to me. Even more, they are the love of God returning to God and rejoicing in God. They are not what they have done. That's the temporal illusion. They are what God has done and what he is doing, which is eternal. Likewise, you are not what you have done. You are what God has done and is revealing in space and time. And now listen very closely. This realization will come to you as pain. All that you think you've done, your life, will pass away. And all that God has done and is doing will remain. You'll lose your life and find it filled with him. This realization will first come to you as pain and you will experience it as suffering. In other words, it's not something you can do. It's something that must be done to you. You will suffer it. This realization will come to you as pain, but once you know what it is, the loss of what you have done and the revelation of what God has done, is when you know what it is, that pain will become the most delicious of pleasures. It's grace. And this knowledge is not something that you have done. It's faith. And this faith is not something you can create. It's the result of a word. So if you say, what can I do? Perhaps it's already done, for you have heard the word that creates all things. Well, anyway, you see, if I really want my children to know how I see them and so then shape them in the image of love, I have to wait for their world to fall apart. I have to wait for their world to fall apart, all that they have done, and then speak a word. You are what God has done. And so I cannot love you any less than I do, but maybe now you can know love a little more than you have. I love you. See, that's the ultimate discipline. Grace, creating faith and love, and God is love. So Paul looked at Elymas the magician and said, O son of the devil, full of all deceit and all fraud, you will be blind for a time. And Jesus looked at Paul the Pharisee And said, why are you persecuting me? Why are you the adversary of me? And then Paul went blind for a time. Was that hatred? Or was that love? Was that God just punishing Paul? Or was it something more like discipline? Recently I heard James Finley, the psychotherapist who just wrote this book, The Healing Path. He studied under Thomas Merton. I heard him share on a podcast that Tommy from New York uh, sent my way. A podcast where he shared about this transformative, transformative experience that he had as, as a young man, which revealed to him how it is that we all change, that we have real change. Years ago, he was interning at a veteran's alcohol treatment facility when he was invited to a, a secret ritual. A secret ritual that that only the patients could uh, find out about, uh, the patients at the facility. He found himself in this room with two chairs in the middle facing each other and then like 20, 30 chairs all around it that were now filled with recovering alcoholics. And in one chair sat this new patient, just new at the facility, had the DTs, he's shaking everything. And in the other chair sat another recovering alcoholic who was 
interrogating him. The interrogator looked intently in this man's eyes and he said, what do you love the most? The first man fumbled around a bit and he said, my wife. And at that, everyone in the circle stood up and yelled, bullshit. Then sat down, stared at the floor, serious as death. And Finley says, uh, it was serious as death because he was obviously dying from alcohol. Again, the interrogator said to him, looked him in the eye, asked him, what do you love the most? And the man responded, well, I, I really love my children. And at that, everyone stood up, yelled, bullshit, and then sat down, stared at the floor. It went on like this for a while, said Finley. The patient was obviously disoriented, confused. He was blindsided by these remarks. Everything that he thought he knew, it seemed he didn't know. He was telling himself, but I do love them. Finally, the interrogator asked the question a final time, and the man answered, alcohol. And at that, everyone stood up and applauded. No one sat down. In silence, they formed a line, came to him single file, each one eager to hug him to take their turn and hug him. And and the man just started sobbing. He just came undone. I knew that this was the first time that this person had been touched in a long time, said Finley. And I'm sure he wasn't talking about his body. He was talking about his spirit. It was then, seeing this, that Finley realized that he needed to make this man his mentor, that he would begin to study what he saw happen in that moment of transformation and documented. On the podcast, he shared these six things. First, he says, he was vulnerable. And in his vulnerability, true invincibility was being manifested in the world. Paradoxical invincibility in vulnerability. You see, your false self, the self that you think you have created, is entirely vulnerable. Why? Because it doesn't actually exist. But that which God has created cannot be destroyed. Whatever God does endures forever, wrote Solomon. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. You are something that God has done. Of the devil, that's an illusion you have done. Trusting a lie. Second, he was childlike, said Finley, and in being childlike, true maturity was being manifested in the world. There there was no more posing and posturing and acting and hiding. He was like as free as a little child, little child that emerged from this old man. Third, he was alone, said Finley, but his solitude bore witness to the unit of mystery. We're all alone together. When our self-centered illusions are stripped away, The divine in me can recognize the divine in you, and the divine in you can commune with the divine in in me. Fourth, he knew nothing, said Finley, but he knew because he was known. In other words, he was no longer feeding on the tree of knowledge, trying to justify himself. He was being fed at the tree of life. Known by the one that justifies him. Fifth, he was dying, said Finley, but in the very act of dying, he was being born. If I can learn to die to everything else other than love, until only love is left, then the deathless nature of love, which is the fullness of my very presence, will shine forth in me and in the world. 
The men were coming up to this fellow one by one, taking turns to hug him and, and, and to welcome him. But even more, says Finley, to get a glimpse of the golden glow of one fresh from the opening. <laughs> what do you love was a question of the interrogator. And you see, I think at that moment, that old alcoholic must have begin, begun to realize that in the very depths of his being, he loved love. <laughs> And love was all around him, like a kingdom that, you know, is like constantly at hand. He loved love, and love was in his wife. And love was in his children. And love was in these men now waiting to hug him in the line. Love was not an illusion that he had manufactured with his drug of choice. Love is the reality which manufactured him through death and resurrection. Alcohol was his drug of choice. Honestly, I think mine is approval, which is a far more dangerous drug. Perhaps yours is self-righteousness, like Paul's, or maybe it's just sex, like Chaz. But with it, you try to convince yourself that you are what you have done, which blinds you to what God has done and is doing, which is who you truly are. Sixth. James Finley said that he realized that this wasn't the end of the journey for this man, but the beginning of a long one. I think what he's saying is it takes a lifetime to die. Paul wrote this, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. That's discipline. So when you are afflicted in every way, including by your own failures, when you're afflicted in every way, when you're perplexed, when you're blinded, persecuted, struck down even by God, there's a snake. And he'll whisper, it is because he does not love you. And now he's going to make you pay. So you ought to hide. But Jesus will tell you, it's because he's always loved you. And now he just wants you to know that you could never pay. So why don't you just start dancing and give somebody a hug? Do you want to? What I'm saying is that you are never, ever simply being punished. And yet, as long as you are walking the face of this earth, you're being disciplined. Disciplined in order that you might inherit all things, including yourself and the Creator. Listen to Hebrews chapter 12, which I believe was written by Paul or at least someone close to 12. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. And by sons, you know, he also means daughters, okay? But it says sons in the Greek. For what son is there? Because all the daughters are also a son. And, well, that's another long story. But anyway, what son is there whom his father does not discipline? You know, the book of Hebrews tells us that even Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. What did he suffer? Where and when did he suffer it? 
Verse 7, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which, in which all have participated, okay, that, note that. If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Do you just, do you just get that? Scripture just revealed that if you never suffer, you're a bastard. I'm sorry to use that word, but I really want you to listen to me. If you never suffer, you're a bastard. And now listen even more closely. No one is a bastard. Why? Because he just told us all have suffered. We are all the children of one father who is raising us in perfect love. You're not competing with anyone. But you are in the same family with everyone, but you are not just the same as anyone, and so your experiences are different than everyone's. God knows who you are, and he's disciplined you to become who you are, that together we all, might all become who he is, a communion of love. Verse 9, besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. That's a huge word. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And righteousness, you know, means rightness. It's not a boring word. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet. I remember Tony Campolo talking about um, this little boy he found sitting on a curb in Philadelphia one day, sobbing, wiping the tears from his eyes. He sat down next to this little boy and asked him, you know, what was wrong. And the boy explained, his mother had punished him. I think she spanked him. She'd punished him because his teacher had reported to his, his mother that he had talked back to her in school. And then he explained to, to his mom, he said, I explained to my mom that the teacher, uh, she deserved it, but, she, but she, she spanked him anyway. She spanked him anyway for talking back to his teacher, and now he was convinced that his mom didn't love him. Remember, Tony said he, he fought back a grin. And then he started to explain to the boy that even if his teacher was wrong, the way that he talked to her wasn't right, and that if his mother didn't punish him for such things, it would be evidence that actually she didn't love him and didn't care about the kind of boy that he would be. But the fact that she had disciplined him meant that she actually loved him quite a lot. After a time, the boy's face lightened up. He finally got up skipped home to tell his mom that he loved her too. Well, not all moms are good, right? Not all dads are good. Some are abusive. But you have the very best dad. He's all powerful. He's all good. And he is all love. And when you believe it, you'll want to skip home and tell him that you love him too. And you also want to tell your neighbors. Because that's the gospel. So Saul looked intently at Elmas the magician and said, Oh, son of the devil, full of all deceit and all fraud. You will be blind for a time. The, v the ESV translates it as if Paul said, Elmas, you... 
son of the devil. More literally translated, Paul says, O son of the devil. You see, I think Paul is aware that he's not really talking to the true Elymas. He's talking to the imposter. Whatever the case, he does say, O son of the devil, full of deceit and all fraud, you will be blind for a time. So, is that the gospel? And are we to ever say such things? I think it is the gospel. Jesus blinded Paul in order that after a time, Paul could see. And are we to ever say such things? Well, no. Definitely not if we have not seen that we are blind or have been blind. No. But maybe, yes, if we know that we were blind and only God can make a man born blind to suddenly see. Guess you'd have to ask the Spirit on that one. I'm convinced that it was precisely because Paul had been a religious magician and because Paul knew that he was chief of sinners and because Paul had been blind to his own blindness that Paul could look at Elymas with the utmost compassion and say, what he said. It was precisely because the recovering alcoholics had lived the lie that they could call bullshit and then speak the gospel. It's only when you believe amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like you, that you can preach amazing grace to a wretch like your neighbor. And so Paul looked at Elymas, and full of the spirit of Jesus, he spoke, O son of the devil, full of deceit and all fraud. On the tree in the garden, Jesus lifted his head and he cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he delivered up his spirit. Where do you suppose he was when he felt so blind, when he suffered so, and yet in that place chose to worship? Well, he was on the tree in the garden and he had descended into us. Paul, Elymas, you, me. For earlier that day, in the wee hours of the morning, he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat, put it inside of you. Do this and remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this is the covenant in my blood. The life is in the blood. Drink of this. Drink of this, all of you. God loves you so much that he not only disciplines you, he is the one that is disciplined within you. He learned obedience through what he suffered. You cannot make yourself him, but he can make you himself. And that's the end. <laughs> He's the end. The plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. 
And to be clear, the story of Elymas doesn't actually end in Acts chapter 13. It ends in Revelation chapter 5. When and where John hears every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is within them, saying to him who sits on the throne and under the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. John hears every creature. And that would include Elymas. God turns every lonely magician into a worshiper lost in love. I just think that's incredibly encouraging. So let's worship. Amen. So pray these words with me. Lord God, in Jesus' name, we ask that you would baptize us with your fire, with your spirit, in your love. It's a little bit scary, isn't it? When they were baptized in the Spirit in the book of Acts the, the first time, because it happened several times, baptism, baptism just means immersed. You know, they spoke in tongues. People really liked that one, so they made a whole denomination out of it. Sometimes people got healed. Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead. Jesus was then led by the Spirit out of the wilderness to be tempted by the devil for 40 days and 40 nights. You see, when you're baptized by the Holy Spirit, it kills the magician because you're no longer in control. And all you do is worship. And so, Lord God, I do pray that you would baptize us in your spirit and you would manifest the things you want to manifest, but that no matter what, we would worship you. Because the end, then the end, I, th I think that's the point. The fire falls on the altar and we present ourselves as sacrifices of love, lost in love with you. So, Lord God, we invite you to be the fire that fills your temple. The glory that surrounds us, the glory in our midst. We thank you that you are love and we surrender to you, Lord God, in Jesus' name. Amen.